This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 10, Episode 21. This is Writing Excuses Q&A on world building. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Howard. I'm Mary. And I'm Dan. And we have gone to you guys for your questions on world building. Question from Lana Wood Johnson. Was there ever a world building element you missed and regretted it? I'm assuming that's a world building element. Either did you forget, ever forget one or that you had a chance to put into one of your books and regretted not putting it in? Yes. Go for it, Dan. Well, I wrote a post-apocalypse story in which nobody rode a bicycle. <laughs> Looking back on that, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bicycles would make a lot of sense, huh? Yeah, they would. Yeah. They'd be, I think, the form of transportation, but no. Oh, well. Oh, there was the spoke plague. The great spoke right. plague of uh, 77. <laughs> um. Those I never really regret because I always just write them down for the next story or I work them in somehow somewhere else. And the ones I've forgotten, well, I've forgotten how good they were, so. Yeah. The, <laughs> the one that I did, uh, I have a story called uh, The Bride Replete, and it's, it's uh, I decided that it's all aliens all the time, and so I decided that my, uh, on this world, the females were the larger and the dominant and uh, yet, in the courtship scenes, I still have them conforming to gender types in terms of who Ooh, has who the courts. Who has the court? Who courts? I was like, oh, that's stupid. It's incredibly <laughs> stupid. I think the one piece of world building that I that I regret the most, and it wasn't a, an omission. It was the decision to try to make a race of aliens who had their mouths positioned above their eyeballs. I love those guys. And I love them too, but I realized that whether I drew them frowning or whether I drew them smiling, I could not tell what the facial expression was because you're, because of the way we humans read faces. Mm -hmm. And if I had that to do over, I would definitely do it differently because it robbed me of the ability to convey emotion in the pictures. Mm. You just have to find a different way. You would have to like, yeah. Yeah, I tried doing it with hand gestures because they had the hand on yeah. top of their head. Yeah. That totally didn't work either. Plus, you never drew them with their eyebrows full of food. <laughs> that's, some, right. that's a missed opportunity. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Sam asks, how do you deal with consistency? And I'm thinking this means in world building, how do you remain, remain consistent? It's actually an excellent question because it is tough. Yeah. Um, I often say to my students, your job is to extrapolate. That's, that's the point of this world building is to provide interesting moments, but to extrapolate and to go where the reader thinks you're going to go and the places they don't think you're going to go, but that they say, wow, I should have thought of that. Yeah. One, one thing that I will say is that the more things you change, uh, the, the farther it will get from our world. And, and so then the harder it will be for you to be consistent. Uh, it's, and this is not a, you know, please don't ch make a lot of changes. It's just an awareness that sometimes when you are starting out, mm -hmm. it is easier to, to look, at it, uh, look at it and say, I'm going to change this one aspect of the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and then the ramifications of changing that one aspect will change everything else. You yeah. know, that's honestly 
that's a really good suggestion. Um, if you can consider the ramifications of the one change, you can keep that in your head. Your readers can keep it in their head. Not everything has to be Dune. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. with with regard to uh, consistency, I mean, the schlock mercenary story, I've been telling it for 15 years now, and, and there are inconsistencies. Um, a lot of them I'm able to hang lanterns on by just saying, you know, when the character last quoted this particular maxim, he got it wrong. Because I quote stuff wrong all the time. What really happened is, no, the new wording is better and tighter, and that's the word that I'm going to use. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. and so, but just allowing the characters to be to be mistaken about mm. things. Yeah. Well, and then allowing the characters to be mistaken about things. I I, I use that. Although sometimes I also I use it on purpose. The other one is. Um, I will sometimes use these inconsistencies and mistakes as what they call in painting a happy accident. It's like, well, so this is inconsistent, but what is is there something in the understructure that would actually cause it to be this way? Um, have I made a mistake or is this something that I can use? Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, I uh, in in the first uh, in the first novel, there's a, a world building mistake in uh, Shades of Milk and Honey, which is that I, I have Mr. Ellsworth using a, a warming charm to, mm-hmm. to heat his flask when he's hunting. But I've also said that these are incredibly dangerous. And so, uh, but, you know, at this point it's canon. Right. So how do I deal with it? You and just run with it. So what I do is that I, I have commentary later about, about how dangerous it is and you can't do much of it. And... Um, and what you've never wondered why the uh, there there's so many noble sons who don't have children, <laughs> right? Right. And, it's and, a different kind of dangerous. Yeah. You're thinking it's going to explode, but yeah. in reality, yeah, that's really clever. Um, uh, this is a great question here, particularly with things you were talking about in um, some of our podcasts on this topic, Mary. It's how do you decide when something should be a hidden version of our world? Or how do you decide if it needs its own universe? I'm worried that a historical backdrop can feel like window dressing. Oh, um, so when I am using a historical backdrop, the mm-hmm. reason I'm doing it is because of the tension between the actual history and the story that I'm trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the, the historical setting that I've chosen is not window dressing, it is absolutely integral. Oh, of course. I think they're worried about when they say something... It's a hidden version of our world. Oh, I suppose you can interpret that two ways. In my head, I was thinking, oh, it's, it's something like they're writing a fantasy world, but it's really our, using our cultures well, and things like hi- that. Historical fantasy yeah. is becoming a really big thing. It is. Yeah. It is. And so that's one where you, you, know, you have to decide, do I want this to be a really weird version of Europe? Or do mm-hmm. I just make it its own? Yeah, yeah. Guy Gabriel Kay's sailing to Serantium yeah. could have been written as a historical fiction centered around was it Constantinople? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it wasn't, and there were some things that I really loved about it that just wouldn't have fit mm-hmm. if it had been a historical uh, or an alt history. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's he's a really good example of someone who just says, no, it's secondary world fantasy, and yes, I'm influenced by, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think a lot of it comes down to what is the story that you're trying to tell. 
And if that story is going to be enhanced by an awareness, a reader's awareness of some of the history of our own world, use it. If it's not going to be enhanced by it, and if it's getting in your way, that's when you really start looking at at moving to a secondary world. If the if the history is getting in the way of the story that you want to be telling, yeah. So here here's a question that someone else asked that we we touched on. You mentioned cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. and they ask, how can you write a world like Guy Gavrikov is a great example. His worlds are inspired by in Earth culture, yet how does that not become cultural appropriation? Okay, so here's the thing about cultural appropriation. Um, when you are inspired by another culture, the chances are that you will make someone angry, and mm-hmm. you have to own and accept that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a long, slightly yeah, longer spiel, um, and and I'm gonna use a metaphor, which is I the uh, the dress that is on the cover of, of Noble Family, I made that dress, and that dress is made from an absolutely gorgeous sari, uh, that is hand beaded by an unknown artisan in India that I have no way to thank or acknowledge in any way. And what I did by taking the sari is that I took this perfectly good Indian garment and I cut it up and made it into a British dress. And I receive all of the credit for that dress, though what makes it special and beautiful is the hand-beating and I cannot acknowledge the person who did the beating. Right. So, so this is one of the things that happens when, when the, the exciting aspects of your world, every, or of your story, everything that is exciting and interesting about your story comes from somebody else's culture. You, have a, you, you, you may have a problem. The question then becomes, should I have made the dress? Mm-hmm. You know, because I am cutting this thing up. For me... When you're looking at this and when you're trying to make this decision, a lot of it comes down to how well that, that culture is represented. So if that, if, if the, the sari was a one of, well, I mean, it is a one of a kind. But, right. but if, it, if it was a museum piece, if it was 500 years old, I absolutely should not have cut that up. That would have been horrible. If it was out of a factory and there were billions of them, no problems cutting it up. It's sitting in a weird gray area. And there are people who will tell me that I should not have cut it up. And there are people who will say, yes, I did. I was completely fine because, you know, sail rack, it was made to be worn. And, but that, that line is going to be different for every situation and every reader. So what you have to do when you're trying to make this decision is to look at the context of the thing that you are appropriating. If it is something that is... Um, if it is something where there is a high degree of visibility, then you are likely to be safer in adopting some aspects of that because your readers are likely to have encountered it in its original form. If it is something that is not very well known, then you need to be very careful because chances are you will be the first and only experience that your readers have. At at risk of oversimplifying, I'm going to go ahead and oversimplify because of something you said earlier that, that stuck with me. If the gee whiz of your world building is, oh, gee whiz, this is just like imperial China, instead of, oh, gee whiz, this is a, uh, this is a space opera with neat things and there is fun historical China flavor to it, uh, I think that's where you've got the problem. 
Well, I would also say that you have the problem with the fun historical China flavor as well. Um, be, but we could do an entire podcast on cu yeah. cultural appropriation, and and I would love to can of worms that, and I at think some we just point, need to can okay. of worms it. Um, and bring in some other people to talk about it. Okay. Uh, the 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 question is that it's going to differ, and uh, and, and actually, here let me give you a short pithy answer. Um, Think of it like uh, quoting sources mm -hmm. in material. You know, if you're writing a book and you quote 10% of something, it's, you know, it, you're, you're probably okay. You might be in fair use. If it's, if it's, you're quoting 50% of it, if you're not citing your sources, um, if you're and not doing plagiarism. it with... Yeah, so... Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Let's go ahead and do our book of the week. Okay. So book of the week is a book that I narrated. It's called A Wilder Rose by Susan Wittig Albert. And I was reading, narrating this book and thinking, I want to, every writer I know to read this book. It's, it's fantastic. It is the story of Rose Wilder, who was the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder of Little House on the Prairie fame. Rose Wilder was an incredibly successful author, writing during the Great Depression, and she was supporting herself and her family and foster children on her writing income while battling depression. And, and this is the kicker, she ghostwrote Little House on the Prairie. She ghostwrote all of the books. So this is a heavily researched fiction. It's completely fiction, um, except that it's based on her, her letters and... Uh, and journals, and it's it's beautifully constructed. So it kind of straddles the line between historical fiction and creative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and one of the things that it says in the foreword is that it straddles that line in exactly the same way that the Little House on the Prairie books did, which is that they are completely based on real incidents, but tweaked for dramatic purposes. Um, but it's wonderful in particular because of the portrait that it paints of a writer's daily life, someone who writes full time for a living on a typewriter um, and the revision process and the collaboration process with her mother. 
uh, and her relationship with her agent. And just, it's, I just, I want every writer, just go, go to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse with a 30 day free trial, a 30 day trial, you can get a free copy of it. Even if you don't do this, if you already have a membership, if you're going to pick up a book this year, please pick this one up. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Excellent. Well, we're almost out of time, but I want to do one more question. Um, not everyone enjoys world building, so I wanted to go the bare minimum. How much world building is enough without being too little? Well, it depends on the kind of story you're telling. There's this thing <laughs> called contemporary fiction. <laughs> no, I mean... I, no, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry I gave you a facetious answer. <laughs> that question was from Scott King. Any, Sorry, any Scott. responses? I, well, uh, there's there, there's the whole subgenre of uh, magical realism where uh, you're writing a book in that that is set in you know the real world mm-hmm. and there is magic, but the magic is also explainable as as reality, and so the the world building that you're doing is just. It, it's almost like you know inventing superstitions uh, that can be uh, that can be applied. Yeah. Well, without using the the genre trick of getting out of a genre where you have to do yeah. a lot of world yeah. building, the, um, the 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 actual trick is that you need to do just enough world building to answer your readers' questions. Right, and to fulfill the type of story you're trying to tell, the plot that you're working on. Um, like I think said, that's what we talked about all month. We, we talked yeah. about, you know, let your let your your character passions and the conflicts drive your world building. Um, and in that case, if you're not interested in world building, don't have their passions and their conflicts lie there, and you can probably go more sparse. You don't need to be writing four hundred thousand word Way of Kings novels. Um, there are lots of fantasy writers who are doing, you know, much shorter works. Now, this is the challenge of writing fantasy as short fiction. Because of this this world building that sometimes you feel like you need to put in. And it absolutely isn't necessary. There are great fantasy stories that don't involve this type of world building at all. So maybe read some short stories. Ask yourself, what are they doing to kind of make this more sparse? All right. This has been Writing Excuses. Oh, do we need to do a writing prompt? Oh, we do. Uh, I, I, I didn't I, I, have been writing you excuses forgot it, yet. But I didn't forget it because I, put I it, have it. Oh, I that's put good. the thing down. Next uh, our next series of, uh, of episodes, the next chapter in this masterclass is on description, right? Uh, and we've been doing all this world building. Take some stuff that you've world built. Uh, take uh, you know, whatever the, the G-Wiz or the MacGuffin is and, and you know, a scene in which it appears and rewrite the scene describing this technology in a completely different way. And when I say completely different... You can reuse articles and pronouns. You can reuse MacGuffins and, and character names. But all of the other stuff, all the stuff you're using to color this in and to tell us what it is, uh, do it differently. All right. Now you're out of excuses. Go right. 
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.